0: Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News, What Happened To, ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes,
2: and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
0: On a cold night in early February 1981 patrons of four bathhouses in downtown Toronto were surprised when 200 plain clothed and uniformed police descended upon them in a series of coordinated raids across the city. Dubbed Operation Soap, the raids were a culmination of a six month investigation and it led to close to 300 people being arrested on the street, some wearing no more than a towel as they were subjected to excessive behavior by police, including verbal taunts about their sexuality.
2: I do know my emotion was utter rage, utter rage, just furious that this would even be considered to have happened within our community. Those bathhouses were safe spaces, safe places for us to go and meet other individuals. They did physical damage to the property. And that physical damage was like physical damage to people. That was physical damage to our psyche.
0: It left many in the city outraged, prompted protest, and became a watershed moment for Toronto's queer community. I'm Erica Vela, a journalist with Global News. And today on What Happened To? I travel back 40 years to that cold February day to speak with those who lived through it and to find out what lessons were learned from that fateful night. This is the Toronto Bathhouse Raids.
1: Well, I'm I'm a gay man and I was born around the time of these various raids that were occurring in the ni- early 1980s. And I had this sort of deep curiosity within myself as to, you know, the the historical context of the community that I later belonged to. And it was also deeply personal. Uh, I had family who was part of this community at the time of the raids. My uncle, my uncle John, uh, he was in Toronto during the 1980s. He wasn't captured as part of the raids, but nonetheless, he was still part of that community. And he later died uh, of... uh, HIV-AIDS in 1994. And so as a kid, I was really impacted by that experience and seeing firsthand uh, the struggles that uh, the community I belong to have gone through.
0: That's Tom Hooper. He's a historian and sessional assistant professor in the Department of Equity Studies at York University. He spent years studying the bathhouse raids in the late 70s and early 80s. Toronto is now known to have some of the biggest pride celebrations in the world. But it wasn't always the case. In
1: the 1970s, there was a, an emerging and vibrant queer community that existed uh, mainly on Yonge Street, uh, around Yonge and College, that kind of area. And also a lot of people who lived in Cabbage Town and other sort of Areas of the city that offered cheap housing for young single men and young single women um, and uh, young gender queer people to move into the city and form part of this community. There were various business establishments that had offered services to queers, including a few bars, but also these places that were known as bathhouses, spaces where uh, gay men in particular could gather together meet each other for sexual encounters within these private clubs. So that was the context of the 1970s in terms of the community. And there was this widely held belief within Canadian society that those sorts of activities were legal and that they had been legalized by this act in 1969 by Pierre Elliott Trudeau that supposedly decriminalized homosexuality.
0: Between 1968 and 1969, Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau sparked controversy surrounding the Liberal government's passage of Bill C-150.
2: There's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation, and I think that, uh, you know, what's done in private between adults uh, doesn't concern the criminal code.
0: Even after 1969, sex between men was illegal in Canada, just not in private bedrooms. In addition, a law from 1892 made gross indecency between men illegal, meaning any same-sex attraction, which includes touching, dancing, and kissing. The law was made gender neutral in 1953. And
1: the myth is that that supposed decriminalization enabled this queer community to form in the 1970s. But I think as the bathhouse raids show us, Uh, that is a myth, and it's not actually true. Our communities were forming in the 1970s despite consistent police harassment and surveillance and continued criminalization.
0: Bill C-150 made acts legal, but under special circumstances. You had to be over 21 years old, and you had to do things in private, otherwise you were still breaking the law. Toronto's gay community had been a target leading up to the raids. Drag performers would be accosted, often leading to police intervention. Then in 1977, the community would be dealt another blow when 12-year-old shoeshine boy, Emmanuel Jacques, was sexually assaulted and killed above the Charlie's Angels massage parlor on Yonge Street. The murder provoked media coverage. Blame was placed on gay men, which added to the bigotry towards Toronto's queer community. Then, less than a year later, on December 8th, 1978, 20 police officers raided the barracks bathhouse and several dozen men were arrested.
1: And this was uh, a significant attack. This was a significant escalation. Uh, Whereas the raids previously, the number of arrests were quite limited. Uh, This was um, larger than that. And so the community responded with protest. In the aftermath of the protest, many of the activists were thinking, okay, what do we do now? We held this protest, we got this media coverage, now what? They decided, well, we have to fight this in court. We have to support the men who were charged in the bathhouse. We have to raise money. We have to find gay-friendly lawyers who will take up their cause and will convince them all to plead not guilty. And if we can do that, then we can mount some sort of community resistance against the bathhouse raids. And so that's exactly what those activists did. They formed this group. Initially, it was called the December 9 Defense Fund. Doesn't really roll off the tongue, and it doesn't really have any kind of political impact. So uh, a few months later, they changed the name of the group to uh, something that spoke to their cause, which was the Right to Privacy Committee. And that this group was gonna fight back against police harassment of uh, gay men and uh, other queers.
0: The Right to Privacy Committee became one of the city's largest and most active advocacy groups during this time and would play a very important role in just a few years because unfortunately, this wouldn't be the last raid. Ron Roseness grew up in Ottawa. He knew from an early age that he was gay and was accepted and loved and supported by both his parents and his brother and sister. In his 20s, he moved to Toronto and often visited the bathhouses in the city.
3: I think it's very important to mention that I had uh, a very clear understanding and an agreement with my long-term partner at the time. And uh, we were, I would say, um, Uh, psychologically and uh, in our hearts, monogamous and committed to one another, Uh, but as gay men during a time of great sexual liberty and uh, freedom uh, gave each other permission to go to the bathhouses when we wanted uh, on occasion.
0: On February 5th, 1981, he had plans to visit the Roman baths with his cousin,
3: Well, the night began as, you know, it usually does uh, at at the bathhouse uh, with me arriving. And uh, as was my habit at the time, renting a room, um, I had um, little desire to uh, park my clothes in a locker and then have no place where I could actually rest or find refuge or even invite somebody to my room or, uh, uh, you know, be comfortable uh, within the within the bathhouse, so um, I rented a room. Um, I took a, a walk around. Um, I greeted some people I knew because it was actually quite a social environment, and a lot of the same guys um, would frequent uh, the bathhouse, particularly the Romans too. And so there were lots of guys to whom I, you know, said hello. Um, I, I think that uh, one of the things that we all sort of dealt with was um, the challenge of meeting new people uh, on this rather familiar territory. But I think we most importantly viewed it as safe space where we could enjoy ourselves.
0: Ron said he was sitting alone when he heard unexpectedly loud noises.
3: I'm not sure where my cousin was at that moment, um, but eventually there was pounding on the doors. Um, I opened the door to face a police officer who uh, basically said, "Get dressed and come to the come to the front." Um, as I recall, I was given a few minutes to grab my clothes, um, met my cousin in the front, front hallway, but we were pretty roughly rounded up by the police, um, and they were, you know, um, calling us dirty faggots and uh, generally um, handling us very roughly. It was it was shocking, shocking to me. It was like my first ever encounter with the state um, and and police. My heart was racing, and I, I remember kind of holding my cousin close to me, and, and I remember saying to him later, um, jokingly, no, we're family, you can't separate us. It's all a bit of a blur, but uh, everybody was gathered together, and then we were processed finally at at a local, one of the local police divisions.
0: Ron was one of 306 men who were arrested that night. He was charged with found in a common body house, which means he was found in a place that was being used for the purpose of prostitution or other acts of indecency. The vagueness of this law allowed it to be applied to anything that offended current moral standards of decency when it came to sex. Ron was arrested as part of Operation Soap, which was the culmination of six months of undercover work into alleged sex work and other indecent acts, where police also targeted public washrooms and sometimes hid in the vents to catch people in the act. On February 5th, 1981, 200 plain clothed and uniformed officers raided the barracks, the club baths, Richmond Street Health Emporium, and the Roman baths, where Ron was. Over 300 people were arrested. Dennis Finley is a community activist and recalls news of the raid spread quickly. And so did the indignation.
2: I do know my emotion was utter rage, utter rage, just furious that this would even be considered to have happened within our community. Those bathhouses were safe spaces, safe places for us to go and meet other individuals and the fact that they had been attacked and uh, damaged and and destroyed by the police in their attack on the community. They literally went in with sledgehammers and bolt cutters and they smashed doors when people were standing there saying, I've got the key to this door, I'll let you in. And they went, fuck the key, and they pulled out their sledgehammers and they smashed property. They did physical damage to the property. And that physical damage was like physical damage to people. That was physical damage to our psyche.
0: Furious that police would attempt to publicly shame and destroy businesses and the patrons that used them, the queer community wouldn't stand for it.
2: They were going to shut us down. They were going to try and push us back into our closets. And the best way for them to attack us was through what they thought was the most vulnerable Um, part of ourselves are sex lives. Well, I'm sorry, they bet on the wrong pony because the community was just furious.
0: Within hours, people mobilized and a protest was organized for the next day. Keep in mind that this was the early 80s. There was no such thing as social media. Instead, they used word of mouth. And Dennis was on the front line spending much of the day handing out flyers informing people of the demonstration.
2: There were going to be 20 people at the corner or more. But as the time went on and as midnight struck, the intersection filled. We blocked the street. We closed off Young Street. Cars could not get up and down Young Street anymore. And ultimately, there was like 3,000 people showed up. On 24 hours notice, less than 24 hours notice, because there was such a realization that the police and the state had overstepped their grounds, straight people came out in support of us. And so this great swelling of people coming out and standing in the streets and marching down and going down Young Street to Dundas, then over to in front of. Uh, 52 Division, and screaming our lungs out, fuck you, 52. You know, I'm sorry, we are not going back into the closet. You have done wrong. And then some of those people went back up to the legislature buildings that very night and pummeled the doors.
0: Dennis says that was a defining moment.
2: Something had happened in our city. This was not a small event. They may have arrested 300 people. But 3,000 people came out and said, no, this is wrong.
0: Within a matter of days, the Right to Privacy Committee met at Jarvis Street Collegiate, and Dennis was there.
2: Some of the people who had been arrested talked about the experience. Some of the people who were uh, coming from the lawyers community were speaking about the fact that this is something that we're going to fight, we're going to go against this. But in order to do this, We have organized in the various classrooms down the hall, various subcommittees.
0: Those subcommittees covered community outreach, public action, fundraising, and legal defense. And those in attendance were encouraged to join one.
2: So I wandered into the legal defense committee room, signed up, and discovered that, you know, within a a few months, we had a large group of people who were willing to lawyers who were willing to help us decide on the strategies around how we were going to defend these people always the strategy was do not plead guilty please don't plead guilty we need to fight this the previous rage of smaller groups of people the most of the people had simply gone in been slapped on the wrist for being bad boys and doing na- naughty things and ended up with a criminal record. This time, we decided, no, this was not going to be the strategy that we were going to take forward. And we were determined.
0: Dennis found himself at most court cases. And the first one he attended was for the owners of the bathhouses.
2: Those trials went forward. And the kind of evidence that came out in those trials was really quite revealing in that... um, as we, as I was sitting in, in the courtroom, and this cop would come and be giving evidence about what he had seen when he was going through the bathhouses, because they went undercover. They went into the bathhouses undercover, making notes, making observations. But there was a really interesting thing that we started to notice. There was this very handsome, very attractive cop who would obviously go in. Of course, he was in a towel. Of course, he paid his admission. Of course, he had a body that any, any one of us would have drooled over. And so he would walk down the hall and he would stand in the in the doorway of an open door. Well, what's the person inside going to do? Excuse me. Here is Haughty Toddy, you know, standing there looking at me, smiling at me. Of course, I'm going to remove my towel. And so all of a sudden, Haughty Toddy moves on down. Next cop comes along, looks in, oh, man, masturbating. Oh, my God, this is horrible. This is horrendous. You know, public display of sex. So it became fairly obvious to us, who were following the cases of the keepers, that the cops were being agent provocateurs. They were provoking the very actions that were happening there anyway. But there was a finding of guilt that this premises was considered a common-body house.
0: Patrons of the bathhouses who were arrested the night of the raids had a team of lawyers and community members working towards a defense. Some argued they had legitimate reasons to be inside the establishment.
2: People would use the the steam room or the whirlpool therapeutically. Those were reasons for being there. Some of the bathhouses had gyms weight rooms. One had a swimming pool. So it was a spa. Like, excuse me, is there something wrong with our spas in the world? Then the other uh, argument that was used, and that was the probably one that was most successful, was the issue of identity. The officer who had made the rest had to take the stand and identify the person that they had arrested. If they couldn't identify the, the person who was arrested, and if you haven't gone to the care of being able to identify the individuals that you're arresting and picking them out of the courtroom, that is the man that I arrested, then you've got nothing, no basis for the charges to continue. So that was one of the main issues that was used in the various cases.
0: With each case, Dennis became more and more familiar with the court process.
2: And so any time that a lawyer was before a judge and had an, an instance where they were putting forward an argument, then they simply had to turn around and look at me in the body of the court. And I immediately handed them three copies of whatever the issue was, and they distributed them. So I became a fixture of the court, which the guards at the door knew me, the judges knew me, the prosecution knew me, the lawyers knew me, I was well-known by a lot of people within the court.
0: And while Dennis had no previous legal training, he soon became crucial to the defense of hundreds of men facing charges. With 306 people charged in the bathhouse raids, the cases clogged up the courts at Old City Hall.
2: The judges were really furious the fact that so much time was being taken up by these absolutely useless nonsense cases that they um court system literally moved the cases out to scarborough and now we were down to the situation where i was all of a sudden beginning to see that there were people who didn't have lawyers and we were going to trial and the first time that this happened i didn't know what to do i was A deer in the headlights. I was just shocked. And anyway, this person came in. His name was Red. He pled guilty. And I was devastated. I was just cut to the core.
0: Dennis went home and called one of the lawyers who gave him an idea. She told him to defend the men himself.
2: You stay quiet. You sit down. You do not do anything that draws any attention to you. I will ask the officer who arrested you to be sent out of the court so he cannot see you when you're arraigned. So then the judge is going to call your name again. Once the cop is out, you're going to stand up. The clerk is going to read the charges against you. You're going to sit down. The cop is going to come back in. The very first thing that I'm going to request, that seeing as identity is one of the issues that has been determined by case law, and I can wave the piece of paper, um, and if he can't identify you, then the case is thrown out. Yay. So we we did it. I did 12 of those cases in that format. And I won all 12 of them.
0: In some of these cases, Dennis said the Right to Privacy Committee worked to pack the courtroom with people who resembled the accused. So officers would have a harder time identifying the man facing charges.
2: And in most cases, they couldn't actually recognize the individual because they processed numbers of them.
0: It took four years for the cases to be heard. And Dennis said the Right to Privacy Committee helped to successfully defend about 87% of those cases.
2: It became fairly obvious that the judges agreed that this was inappropriate. This was a colossal, massive millions of dollars wasted on what? trying to push a bunch of gay people back into the closet? I'm sorry, we're not going back there. We're out. And and we're not going to go back into it.
0: Ron Roseness wasn't that lucky. He was arrested with his cousin and now he faced charges.
3: It seemed uh, unjust and unfair uh, in the sense that I had been um, going to the bathhouse uh, on a you know, regular, irregular basis for many, many years and felt that um, I was always there in a, in a safe space. And I think perhaps on some level I was ignoring the fact that over the years there have been many, many, many raids. I was nervous, but I do remember being on the stand and, uh, and when I was asked the question, were you there? I simply told the truth, yes, I was there.
0: He was convicted of being found in a common body house.
3: So, you know, when I received the conviction, it it was a fine for all of $35, although I'd like it back with interest today, uh, and that's not going to happen. But I remember feeling um, just shocked that this could have happened to me. Well, I didn't feel that I had done anything wrong. So the law was being used really to
0: victimize queer people. Since Ron was found guilty, how would this affect his future? Tom Hooper says it wouldn't because of the type of conviction this was.
1: When you're convicted of a summary offense, especially if it's your first offense, which describes the vast majority of these cases, the charges are automatically set aside after a period of two years. So folks like Ron... Uh, they wouldn't have experienced difficulty, say, trying to travel across the border uh, several years after the fact. If they had an employer in the present who wanted to do a criminal record check, this sort of thing may very well pop up, even you know, decades after the fact.
3: Now, I didn't end up with a criminal record, but the record of my actual conviction is still on the books. I would very much like to see the ability uh, to expunge uh, the records of people's convictions uh, for uh, uh, being found in, in 1981, using the body house law.
0: I asked Tom Hooper what happened after the raid, the protest, and many years of trials. Did police change their ways? You would think
1: that the police would learn their lesson. You would think that that would send the message, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that again. That is not what happened. Instead, in June 1981, police doubled down. They went back into the bathhouses. They raided two more baths, arrested you know, a, a, a few dozen more men. And this was a sign that in spite of All that was happening with this resistance, the police were not going to change. They were not going to learn or grow. They were going to attack the community again. And so the community decided to respond in kind. They again took to the streets on June 20th, 1981.
0: Tom says this became known as the Battle of Church Street and was the front lines for queer rights.
1: Police drove uh, a cruiser through the crowd, knocking down several people. They arrived with billy clubs and they beat several people um, to the point that the emergency room at the Wellesley Street Hospital was full of queers who had been beaten by police uh, during this protest. So this battle known as this protest, I guess, known as the Battle of Church Street, uh, this has been known, I guess, as the formation, the forming point of Pride Toronto.
0: The legacy of the Toronto bathhouse raids is seen in the city every June during Pride month. But in June 2016, more than 35 years later, then police chief Mark Saunders spoke to a packed house.
4: The 35th anniversary of the 1981 raids is a time when the Toronto Police Service expresses its regrets for those very actions. It is also an occasion to acknowledge the lessons learned about the risks of treating any part of Toronto's many communities as not fully a part of society.
0: Tom Hooper was at Toronto Police Headquarters that day, but he left feeling disappointed.
1: It's not really an apology, it was uh, an expression of regret and a vague expression of regret at that. You know, I. Usually, with an apology, there should be some sort of, you know, maybe uh, releasing some of the documents that are involved, um, revealing some of the reasons behind it. You know, really, sort of trying to articulate some of the problems that went went on that they're trying to fix and address. None of that was really part of it. So, to me, it felt very political.
0: You might remember at the time, there was a lot of debate over police involvement in Toronto Pride, at the same time as Black Lives Matter was invited to not only join, but lead the parade.
1: So when we look at what happened in the months that followed the apology, we saw police out in Etobicoke, Toronto police, going undercover under the bushes in Murray Curtis Park and arresting several dozen men for engaging in sex acts under the moonlight. And so this is the very same type of surveillance harassment operation that police engaged in through the 70s and 80s that our community fought against, that the police chief was supposedly apologizing for. So yeah, a bit of a a hollow apology that uh, instead of being met with some sort of action for reform, they showed us instead they're going to do more of the same.
0: Dennis Finley, who defended a dozen of the men arrested in 1981, felt the same way.
2: It was a statement acknowledging wrong, but the word apology would have been lovely to have heard because as a member of the community who defended other members of my community and felt attacked by the police, I would really love to have heard the cops say, we apologize.
0: In November 2017, less than a year later, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issued a formal apology to the LGBTQ two-spirit community in the House of Commons.
1: So this was an effort to put the apology into action by offering to clear the criminal records of men who had faced these types of convictions. The problem is that this bill, known as Bill C-66, was incredibly limited. First and foremost, it didn't include the offenses that were most often used to charge queer men, but it didn't include, for example, the body house law. It didn't include uh, the criminal offense against indecent acts. So the the laws that were used to criminalize queers weren't included in this bill. And so people who were arrested in the bathhouse raids they weren't allowed to apply for this record expungement.
0: Then less than a year later, officials introduced Bill C-75 to amend the criminal code, the Youth Criminal Justice Act, as well as other acts.
1: In that bill, as part of addressing these historic offenses that were used to criminalize queer people, they were going to repeal the law of uh, the, the offense of anal intercourse. We appeared before the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights. And we argued that, you know, in addition to repealing the offense of anal intercourse, they should also repeal these other offenses. And we articulated, you know, various reasons why. And as a result of that, the committee amended Bill C-75, and they included the repeal of the Body House law and vagrancy. Um, And so it was directly as a result of uh, our efforts on that.
0: The body house law was officially repealed. And in March 2023, the Minister of Public Safety at the time said those who were convicted could now apply to get their records expunged.
4: The Expungement of Historically Unjust Convictions Act was introduced and passed into law in June of 2018. And by doing so, the government created a path for the permanent erasing of criminal records related to historical injustices. And that is why today we are able to be here to announce yet another step towards righting past wrongs that were related to the way in which our justice system worked and to further protect human rights. And so today, I am very pleased to announce that the government of Canada will enable convictions under the Criminal Code for body house and indecency-based offenses to be eligible for expungement.
0: This sounds like a big deal and a true sign of progress, but Tom Hooper is not as optimistic.
1: They've tried to carve out uh, the the queer part of the body house law from the sex worker part of the body house law and in doing so um, they've actually uh, sabotaged their own efforts and even though this change has happened uh, we'll still see that those charged in the bathhouse raids won't be able to qualify they uh, added the body house law but only if the charges uh, are related to indecent acts and and there's a specific part of the regulation that says if sex work was involved you're excluded you 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 don't qualify for an expungement. So they're thinking that it's really easy to separate the charges that were laid against the men, the gay men in the bathhouses, versus those who were operating brothels and other places of sex work. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way. So when we look at the arrest records, so we look at say Ron Rosenzweig's record of arrest. We see that the police make allegations that sex work was taking place in the bathhouses. Uh, They didn't have evidence of this.
0: By carving out part of the original law, the federal government seems to have made it more difficult for people like Ron Roseness.
1: The federal government doesn't understand the way in which our communities have been criminalized. They didn't understand it in C66. They didn't understand it in C75. They didn't understand it when they made this recent change to the expungements. Uh, And the other part is they're not listening. The liberal MPs celebrating this, talking about how this will include the men who were arrested in the bathhouses, not actually doing the homework to check in with the people who were directly affected by this to make sure that this change is meaningful. And I think that shows that this is just an act. Uh, this, this whole apology process has been an act. It's been, uh, you know, fuel for press conferences and celebrations, and instead of actually
3: doing
0: the hard work on the ground. Ron's conviction doesn't affect his daily life.
3: Let me be clear that if I'm given the opportunity to expunge the records, I will do it. I've already tried, I've applied, and I've been told I'm not eligible. So I've engaged in the process. And if and when and as these laws are reviewed and the availability of expungement is increased and made more broadly available, I will take advantage of it.
0: Over the last four decades, there's been a lot of progress. And Tom said a lot of that is thanks to those who worked day and night to defend the rights of the queer community.
1: We owe... to the people of the Right to Privacy Committee. We owe it to the people who took to the streets in 1981 to fight back. Because that's how that change occurred. It didn't come from above. It didn't come from a law. It didn't come from an apology. It came from our communities. And it came because we fought back. We joined with other movements. We formed solidarities. Uh, that's, That's the legacy of what happened there. And I think that's what we can learn for today. I'm worried that those are the things that we forget when we talk about the bathhouse raids, that we think, oh, this is just a one-time event that occurred, uh, a blemish on Toronto history. Uh, And I I think the history that we've talked about today should show that, no, this was much bigger than that. And it ties very much into the present. Um, We've seen a lot of progress, but we've also seen how there's been some continuity as well there's been you know continuation of some of the same problems and we have to be vigilant for that we can't let progress we can't let our victories stop us from continuing that fight for you know emancipation liberation and social justice
0: Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me with producer Dila Velazquez. Our audio producers are Rosalind Kufour and Rob Johnson. Also, a special thanks goes to Drew Hasselback, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time. 911? 911. 911. 911. 911. what's your emergency?